Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And here we go on a Friday. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we wrap up uh, another week. And uh, been a lot of interesting developments this week. We'll talk about some of them and look ahead as well. Today we'll talk with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association as the White House has released a new rule that would overhaul the National Environmental Policy Act. What does that mean? We'll talk about it with Caitlin Glover with NCBA on today's program. The Renewable Fuels Association has released an analysis showing the economic economic harm to the ethanol industry by COVID-19. Scott Richmond, the chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association, will join us to talk about that analysis. And we'll talk markets and crop conditions with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. All that coming up on today's program. But first, the latest from Washington, D.C. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report joins us. Jerry, thanks for being with us. Uh, What are you hearing about the, the work in the Senate on another assistance bill due to COVID-19 and what would be in it perhaps for agriculture? Uh, well, good, mor- uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, I just got off the phone with Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, who says that he, uh, he and Senator Ernst from Iowa intend to push for aid to ethanol producers, but getting that in the package depends on whether they can get a recognition that either the oil industry is getting help in this package or that they got help previously through the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, as far as what else is in the bill, uh, that's, still, uh, that's still uncertain, but there were, of course, a lot of provisions in the HEROES Act that the House passed. Uh, House Agriculture Committee Chairman uh, Colin Peterson has said he thinks a lot of those provisions will still be, uh, will still be in there, uh, I think another big question is whether there will be aid to the uh, pork producers who had to depopulate their uh, their animals. Uh, so we, we don't know, but I'm expecting the next two weeks to be very, very active. First, the House it will will vote on the Agricultural Appropriations Bill this Thursday and Friday. And then the both houses will will work on the coronavirus aid package. And so basically what you have happening now is uh, ag groups uh, trying to make their case. They are all pointing out the economic harm that they have suffered due to COVID-19 to try to get that assistance in the, whatever bill the Senate passes. Yes, that's right. In fact... On Monday, I have two two uh, rural groups holding press conferences uh, by telephone at exactly the same time. So they're kind of falling over each other, trying to get their message out uh, out to the public. Now, the Republicans, first of all, want to put forward their own package, not just on agriculture, but on everything. Um, and Senator Grassley said that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was determined to keep the cost down below one trillion dollars. Uh, Senator, or excuse me, House Speaker Pelosi says one trillion is the beginning point, and that she thinks the whole package should cost three trillion dollars. So we'll start with that. We've got the Democratic package that's uh, passed the House. Now there'll be a Republican proposal. I'm sure that that won't get through the Senate, and then 
they will have to have a negotiation finally between the House and the Senate. Hopefully that, will, that negotiation will be done by the end of July and the House can leave. Uh, and then the Senate will have one more week to pass that and any other legislation that they want to do before they take their uh, recess for the, for really for the month of August until after, until after Labor Day. But Speaker Pelosi said if, we, if they haven't reached agreement, she'll keep the House in as long as necessary to get a coronavirus aid package. Yeah, so you laid it out. There's the big rub. If the Senate's looking at more at a trillion, the House looking more at three trillion. So that's a big difference there. So when you start making those cuts, what the ag groups will be watching is because they like a lot of that's in that Democratic proposal in the House, the Heroes Act. How much of that gets cut, getting down to whatever figure is acceptable in the Senate? Right. So far, I haven't heard from anybody what their priorities are. Just what is it that the ag groups want most of all? And because there will have to be some concessions, uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, there were, you know, the, 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 whether ethanol gets their money, whether the livestock producers get money for depopulating, um, I think those are two, two, uh, two big, uh, big questions out there. And finally, we also don't know how the agriculture department is going to spend the $14 billion in the, in the uh, Commodity Credit Corporation that has been released to them after the uh, 1st of July. And, of course, they're still getting out the $16 billion of the CFAP money. They're only about, what, $5.5 billion at this point. So they've got a ways to go to get that money out. Yes, and, and then there's the question, I think, of whether this food box program continues because I think the budget for that will run out um, and I was thinking that that might end because that was supposed to absorb the products that had been going to the restaurants and the restaurants were reopening. But now in a lot of states, the restaurants have had to close again, at least for indoor dining. So I think that that problem is still there. Um, and that will have to, there will have to be questions about that too in the next two weeks. Do you think anything else, anything at all major gets done, like a, an infrastructure package or anything like that in this environment? Well, the, um, they're planning to pass, uh, pass the uh, Water Resources Development Act, uh, which, of course, involves the ports and the, and the inland waterways uh, in the House. Um, uh, but I don't think there's time to do, uh, uh, to do anything more than that. But, you, of course, you can never tell what, the, what infrastructure programs might be in the coronavirus aid package. Um, mm-hmm. You know, especially there could be more for broadband. Uh, I, you know, I don't know about uh, highways and, and, uh, and other transportation, but uh, we'll just have to see. The coronavirus aid package can contain anything. And we'll also watch and, and see. what. That's right. What are you hearing on anything more on carbon policy? Uh, no, well, Senator, uh, you know, Senator Grassley uh, said today that uh, it looks like, uh, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency is still considering these uh, uh, requests for these uh, small refinery waivers from several years ago, even though he thinks that common sense would tell you that if, they, if those companies had a problem back then, they should have asked uh, for the waivers at that time. So we don't have anything and we don't, on that, and we don't have any, anything new on the volumetric requirements uh, for, uh, for ethanol either. 
Yep, waiting on those as well. All right, Jerry, thanks a lot. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what uh, the Senate comes up with on this package. Thanks for the update. You're you're welcome, and by next Friday, we should at least know what ag appropriations will be in the House for, for 2021. All right, we'll talk to you then. Thanks a lot. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. So, a major overhaul of the National Environmental Policy Act. A new rule has been released by the White House. We'll talk about it with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. A new rule released by the White House this week would establish deadlines for completion of National Environmental Policy Act reviews and reduce the scope of actions that would require such reviews. Let's talk about it with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Caitlin, thanks for joining us again. We talked a few days ago about grizzly bears. Now we're talking about uh, uh, changes for NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. What's the significance of this new rule? Well, good morning, Mike. And yes, it has been a a week of great news coming out of the administration. Uh, On Wednesday, the president was in Georgia to talk about the finalization of updates and modernization to the National Environmental Policy Act, or or NEPA. So these changes are are things that we've been talking about since about January, February of this year. And and really, you know, I think the important thing to remember and and the important thing to focus on here is that this isn't a rollback of environmental review. What this is is a return to what the NEPA rule, the NEPA process, uh, was always supposed to be, how Congress intended it to be. Now, this is so important because NEPA underpins uh, any of the infrastructure projects we do, but it also underpins all of our grazing activities on public lands. If you are going to take an action, you build a road, a bridge, uh, put in a water tank, or even renew a term grazing permit, um, you have to uh, wait for the NEPA to be done. The NEPA hasn't, had, hasn't been updated in, in about 40 years. Uh, and, and if you think about what's happened in the last 40 years, uh, you know, we, we have seen a, a lot of change. We have environmental experts now who are, are doing NEPA analyses who weren't even born the last time that NEPA was substantively amended. Uh, so this is really a, a landmark update um, and, and really sets the tone for a much more efficient and coordinated process for, for the next several decades. Can you give us an example of how this impacts, say, a rancher uh, based on experiences in the past, what they've dealt with under the old system and how this would improve it? Absolutely. So so I think there are two examples that are, are pretty salient, right? So we had a rancher here yesterday uh, in Washington, D.C., um, Jim Chilton from Arizona. He was at the White House uh, to celebrate an, another deregulatory success or clarification in rulemaking uh, with, the, with the rollback of the Ill, ill-fated Waters of the United States rule. Um, but, but Jim is a great example for how federal overreach and, and an inefficient federal regulatory process can can impact a business. Uh, on, on one hand, you know, he, he has been uh, awarded many environmental uh, awards and accolades uh, for the really good work that he does on his ranch, um, cultivating habitat, making sure that soil is healthy, things like that. But he spent 10 years in a NEPA analysis. 
what we've seen with NEPA has been a, a paralysis by analysis, and this is not something like he's building a, a highway across his ranch. These are these are uh, roads, uh, you know, dirt tracks across dry washes. These are installations of, of, of range improvements, and you see these things on, on, on federal allotments as well. But to take 10 years and, and tens of thousands of dollars uh, to, to undertake these analyses, um, it, it really makes an agency not responsive um, if they're managing a federal asset, and, and it limits economic growth in the case of roads or bridges. Another great example is, you know, when you look across the West, um, the federal uh, government through the Forest Service and the BLM, they manage uh, lands that are suitable for grazing and, and they manage them in, in grazing allotments, right? Federal grazing permits, you can put cows and sheep out. Um, after a NEPA analysis is done and you figure out what the suitability of that land for, for grazing activity is, in addition to, to other factors, right? I'm, I'm simplifying here. But there are hundreds of federal allotments uh, on, on land that are, are just waiting for assessment under NEPA. Um, in one case, uh, a Forest Service officer told me that they would not be able to work through their NEPA backlog for more than seven years just to get a portion of those allotments analyzed. These are allotments that the grass is growing. You're having a buildup of fine fuels. Um, and so when you have delays in NEPA like that, you're, you're uh, really seeing a, a direct impact in the risk of catastrophic wildfire. Those are just two examples, right? Uh, but, but I think they're two great examples for how a more efficient, coordinated, and, and clear process uh, is going to be beneficial for the ag industry. We're talking with Caitlin Glover, NCBA Executive Director for Natural Resources and Executive Director of the Public Lands Council. All right, the Fertilizer Institute is supporting this move, so is the Ag Retailers Association. However, some environmentalists are saying they'll sue. The Western Environmental Law Center says the rule does not represent streamlining, a revision, or a modernization saying we will sue. The rule, they say, will deliberately and massively curtail public input on major federal decision-making. How do you respond to that? So uh, I, I respond to that by saying that that's, that's blatantly false. Um, there, there are two things here that I think are important to remember. Um, what this rulemaking does, it does not change the scope of a NEPA analysis. What it does is it, it requires the analysis to be targeted and occur within a specific time frame, but it doesn't change the fact that you still have to underdo, uh, undertake a NEPA assessment. If you did NEPA before, you're going to have to do NEPA now. You're just going to have to, to focus on reasonable impacts, reasonably foreseeable impacts, uh, and, and causal impacts that you're, that you're able to, to quantify and assess. Um, it, it makes the, the rule much more realistic. As far as public participation goes, the, I, I would say that this, this rulemaking actually increases public participation. One of the criticisms of, of how NEPA became inefficient over time was that there were static points in time where direct stakeholders, local governments, um, and, and associated contacts were not able to weigh in until some of the documents were, or some of this assessment was well underway. This rulemaking requires the agencies to solicit input from the public much earlier in the process to make sure that the, the foundational, uh, uh, the foundation of their environmental assessment or their environmental impact statement, to make sure that that foundation is strong. Um, it also it enhances the ability of, of other stakeholders, tribes and, and other directed stakeholders and, and impacted folks uh, to engage in the process. 
there are always going to be folks who are going to say that because of the timing and because of the, the, the administration that's proposing these changes, that, they, that it, it represents a rollback. Nothing could be further from the truth, Mike. Yeah, the Natural Resources Defense Council is uh, saying this could be uh, lead to disastrous polluting projects like coal mines, highways, incinerators, oil and gas drilling operations and pipelines. Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson said he would file a lawsuit. The governor in Washington said he he claims that. Uh, Paraphrasing, paraphrasing here, basically, that the, this shouldn't be allowed because of climate change, and this comes at a time when we're experiencing uh, dire consequences, he says, of inaction on climate. So he's brought in the climate change issue. Uh, so mm-hmm. obviously the, there's going to be more legal action on this. In the meantime, while that goes on, does this new rule go into place, or is it held up while the, the uh, legal process plays out? So, so that depends a lot on, on how a court decides to rule. Now, uh, the folks that you mentioned who are, are very upset about this rulemaking, I think it's important to remember not only that our, the, a lot of these groups are litigious by nature. Um, rather than engaging the process in, in the development process, they decide to sue on the back end um, to, as, as pure obstruction. Uh, but the, the other thing to remember uh, is that a, a rulemaking, um, that the process by which a rulemaking is enacted, uh, we we're going to see full implementation of this rule on September 14th. Now, of course, here in this country, we do have a robust legal system. And so if a group did seek a preliminary injunction, uh, which I expect someone will do, uh, and a court grants that injunction, we could see a a pause in that rule. Um, I would urge everyone to remember, however, all of your listeners and and listeners across the country, um, that, that the Objections that are being lobbied at, at this, at, at this particular rulemaking, um, they are directly, uh, targeting and trying to eliminate the input uh, and the advancement of the way we undertake environmental assessments. They don't want, these litigious groups, they don't want people from rural America to be able to be involved in a NEPA process. They don't want to be able to use technology to submit those comments. They really want to limit the, the participation from really the folks on the ground, the ranchers, the farmers, the rural communities. Um, this, is, this is not an issue um, that they are trying to, to caretake the environment. This is pure obstruction uh, because they don't like the administration who, who promulgated the rule. Our response to them is saying, look, this is better for public involvement, this is better for the environment, and it's better for the economy. All right, Caitlin, thank you very much. We'll watch how this plays out. Appreciate it. Good to talk with you again. Likewise. Have a good one. Thank you. Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Up next, an analysis showing the ethanol industry's losses related to COVID-19 have already topped $3 billion and could reach $9 billion by 2021. We'll talk about it next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. 
But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Private exporters reporting to USDA sales of 126,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to unknown destinations during the 2020-21 marketing year. That according to the Ag Department earlier this morning. Soybean futures Trended higher yesterday, trending higher on this Friday. Large-scale Chinese buying continues. USDA confirming yesterday morning that 522,000 metric tons of soybeans were sold for delivery in both the 2019-20 and 2020-21 marketing years. August soybeans an hour into the day on this Friday, three cents higher, 896 and a half. November new crop 894 and a quarter, up three and a quarter. In corn, December up two at 339 and a half. Chicago wheat, September contract, down a penny and a half at 533 and three quarters. Kansas City wheat, September down a half cent at 448 and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat, September steady at 515 and a quarter. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures, the August contract is down 32 at 102.95. October down 35 at 106.25. Feeder cattle, August contract down 87 at 141.72. September at 142.17, down 57. Lean hog futures, August down 90 cents at 52.75. October lean hogs down 65 at 51.17. Outside market activity on Wall Street, the Dow is down 71, S&P down 4, NASDAQ up 2, August crude oil down 28 at 40.47. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell. Everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. 
According to a new economic analysis released by the Renewable Fuels Association, the ethanol industry has already lost $3.4 billion, that's with a B, $3.4 billion this year to COVID-19-related uh, issues, and that could reach $9 billion in losses by 2021. Here to talk about it is Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Scott, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, all segments of agriculture have been trying to, uh, you know, outline and analyze and, and put the numbers out there, how much they've been impacted and harmed by the uh, pandemic. And certainly these numbers we knew were going to be big, the the damage done to the ethanol industry due to the shutdown and uh, the lack of uh, fuel consumption. And, and even though we've seen some improvement lately, these numbers show just how serious this is and still can be. That's correct. Well, good morning and thanks for having me on. Yes, uh, we have had the worst downturn in ethanol industry history. And uh, you were talking about the different segments of agriculture that have been impacted during the pandemic. And that's certainly true. Uh, What's a little bit different is that, uh, you know, ethanol is part of transportation fuel demand. And uh, initially in March and April, uh, everything was shut down. Transportation fuel demand went down by 45, 50 percent, which is just a tremendous amount, something that's never been seen uh, before. And uh, we fortunately, the economy has, uh, has started to reopen. Uh, and we're coming back out of that, but we are still nowhere close to uh, to where we would normally be. So it's uh, we've had a deep uh, impact so far, and we have a continuing impact. All right, let's break this down. Through June of this year, your study has found, let's start with how many uh, gallons you've lost in ethanol production. Right. So what we did is we took a look at uh, U.S. Energy and Informa- Information Administration data uh, and went back and looked over what happened between, Mar- between March uh, and June. So these are basically uh, based on government numbers. They're pretty solid. And if you look at what happened to both production and consumption, uh, we lost uh, over 1.3 billion gallons. Uh, and on the consumption side, that's probably uh, a little bit conservative. And uh, for your listeners out there, that translates to nearly 500 million bushels uh, of corn uh, that was not ground to produce ethanol. And those volumes of ethanol, those volumes of corn, uh, are things that we're simply not going to get back. Uh, and if you, if you look at the, uh, the price impact that went along with uh, the reduction in demand, the reduction in volumes, uh, and you multiply that out, uh, the ethanol industry lost about $3.4 billion uh, in revenues, as you mentioned. So um, I've been working with the industry for 30 years. Uh, this is certainly the steepest uh, downturn uh, that I've ever seen. And if you combine the volume downturn uh, with what's gone on in prices, the, uh, the losses are really substantial. And, of course, that led to... Um, ethanol plants either cutting cutting back or shutting down altogether? Yeah, by our measure, uh, at one point in April we had, so there's about 200 facilities in the industry. Uh, we had about 80 that were completely shut down. Uh, we had about uh, another 80 uh, that were operating at substantially reduced run rates. Uh, and then there were probably 
50 or so that were operating at anywhere close to uh, to normal capacity. So it was uh, something that uh, wasn't just limited to uh, a few companies or uh, a few states or anything like that. Uh, this is something that uh, affected the, the industry uh, very broadly. We're talking with Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. And again, Scott, your projections are, and it's hard to know because we don't know what's going to happen with the uh, the virus, but we're already seeing some things that we're starting to reopen, kind of start to reclose now as we, we deal with this uh, pandemic that's ongoing. So what you're projecting is that these losses could get to as much as $10 billion by next year. Right, and it's it, this proved to be a pretty good time to take stock of what's what's gone on. We're kind of well underway with the initial uh, recovery. We can take we can take a look back, and we've got statistics on what happened uh, over the past few months uh, that we really didn't have when we were real in real time. Uh, and we're starting to get a little bit of a glimmer of uh, a view of uh, of what's to happen in the in the future. And what we decided to do was take a look at we wanted to to use uh, some third-party information, so it wasn't just RFA information. We took a look at uh, EIA forecasts as well as forecasts out of FAPRI from the University of Missouri. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you look at those forecasts, we are probably on track uh, to lose uh, about $7 billion in revenues overall this year uh, and another $2 billion or so uh, next year into 2021. The EIA does not have uh, gasoline consumption or ethanol consumption uh, getting back to 2019-type uh, levels uh, until at least the end of 2021. So, you know, that's something that gives you a little pause. And they are, for, they are assuming a relatively steady recovery. Um, if we continue to have uh, flare-ups of, uh, of the pandemic, uh, we don't know what's going to happen uh, in the fall and early winter. Um, you know, the the impact could be uh, could be a little bit more to the industry. So it's something that we've got to stay vigilant about, and we're uh, definitely keeping a watch over. And then the other thing to point out here that maybe some people don't think about when they hear a, a story like this, they think, well, that's the ethanol industry, but. The ripple effect through rural economies is a big part of this as well. Yeah, the ethanol industry supports about 350,000 jobs uh, in total. It's it, it, You've spent time in rural communities. Uh, ethanol plants hit, over the last 10 to 20 years have been a huge driver uh, of economic growth and jobs in rural communities. They've been a tremendous source uh, of demand for uh, for agricultural products, and we know that the corn sector could uh, could use that uh, right now. So, um the the impact is not just limited to uh, the people who work uh, and have invested in those 200 uh, ethanol facilities. Uh, the impact is broader to uh, to the ag- agriculture sector in particular and to rural America more broadly. Of course, the Senate looking at another assistance package should be pointed out. Ethanol was not included in the last assistance package. Uh, so there's a point to be made here. This really clarifies the damage being done to the industry. And I know the, in, in the Senate they're already talking about, well, they got to look at what's being done with the oil industry and things like that. But still, I think it's, it's a pretty uh, clear 
message here about the economic harm being done to the nation's biofuels industry. Right, and this is this is an industry that we really need to keep uh, together. We need to keep uh, kind of in, in uh, you know in 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 good shape so that uh, as we come out of this uh, pandemic, uh, the industry will be intact. The industry uh, will be will be able to come back uh, at full capacity. And you know there are a lot of people who are uh, planning forward about uh, what needs to be done uh, in terms of. Uh, helping out the environment and trying to uh, trying to look forward as to what we can do coming out of this uh, to uh, to uh, make transportation fuels more environmentally friendly. Uh, ethanol has a huge role to play in that. Uh, our carbon intensity is about 40% less uh, than gasoline, so it's an industry that we want to uh, maintain intact and we want to have ready to go uh, as we do come out of this pandemic. You talked about how long you've been with the industry, and I know I've covered it since uh, the late 70s when it was just getting started. Uh, it, there's been a lot of ups and downs facing the biofuels industry over the years, but this would seemingly, I think, uh, would be the deepest valley it has faced, the greatest challenge it has faced. Yeah, it's you know this is an industry where you're <laughs> you're involved in not one commodity market but two commodity markets. Uh, your your inputs are are, are uh, Priced in the agricultural markets, your outputs are priced. Uh, well, ethanol is priced uh, in the energy market, and the people who are working in the industry uh, are used to uh, dealing with with fluctuation, dealing with ups and downs, commodity cycles, droughts, things like that. Uh, what they're not used to is uh, people just stopping driving for uh, for a period of time. And uh, having consumption go go down by 45 or 50 percent, uh, having uh, having stocks swell, uh, being concerned about maybe being like the oil industry and you know <laughs> running out of places to uh, to put it, and uh, you know having margins go deeply negative to uh, provide deep signal to uh, to the industry, not just the uh, not just the high-cost plants, but all plants, to cut back or uh, or idle, and that's just something that uh, you know the depth of 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 that uh, and the level of uncertainty uh, that's been around it is just something we haven't seen. Tough times indeed, Scott. Thank you for the uh, analysis. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Glad to join you. Scott Richmond, chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Yeah, as he said. There have been a lot of challenges facing the ethanol industry. Uh, a lot of them you could kind of see coming, some you didn't, but uh, no one expected something like just a massive shutdown in, in driving that uh, we've seen from COVID-19, just one of the many things uh, out of this pandemic that we just never thought we would see. All right, how does this impact markets? We'll talk about that next with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to chill. 
First, keep the fridge at 40 degrees or below to keep bacteria from growing. Use an appliance thermometer to be sure things are cool. Then, chill leftovers and takeout foods within two hours and divide food into shallow containers for fast cooling. And always thaw meat, poultry, and seafood in the fridge, not on the counter, and never overstuff the fridge. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. We're joined now by Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, last time we talked, we were kind of wondering what the May numbers would look like, what impact COVID-19 would have on the May meat export numbers, and we're starting to see some of that reflected in those numbers, aren't we? The May stats were along the lines of what we thought they would be. We're down a bit on beef, down 33% actually, while we're up slightly on pork, down from where we were prior. And I think what we're starting to see is an impact from the supply chain disruptions, which started in April and really crescendoed in May, especially on the beef side. We still see one of our key regions, Latin America, Mexico, Central America, South America, they're a good month behind the U.S. in terms of dealing with COVID-19. You know, food service is still shut down in Mexico. Uh, that kind of leaned pretty heavy on the uh, lower numbers for Mexico as well. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you. Cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. 
Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. A toast to soil health. More and more landowners and their farmers are celebrating healthy soil for good reason. Because farmers who use soil health building practices like no-till and cover crops and who use diverse species and rotations report greater farm productivity, profitability, and resiliency. So here's to your soil's health. Contact your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn how to unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's check in with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Matt, good to talk with you again. How do things look in East Central Illinois? Well, I'll tell you what, they look pretty good. Um, I would say that we've got, uh, you know, an awfully, awfully good crop. Uh, We had a fair amount of rain here uh, this week. Nothing huge, but half inch to nine tenths everywhere. We really didn't need it uh, too bad. Uh, Obviously, whenever it gets as warm as what we've been lately, you always need a rain, but uh, we weren't, I guess, too awfully worried. So uh, our April planted corn is pretty much done pollinating. It looks excellent. We've got all the moisture we'd want. Uh, so barring some major windstorm or a hailstorm or something, I think we could dial in a fairly uh, fairly big crop over here in my part of the wo- uh, world. Yep, and uh, I'm a little west of you. Things uh, look pretty good here, too. A lot of spraying going on. You seeing much insect or disease damage? You know, the thing is, is that we're ripe for disease, I think, uh, both in corn and beans. And so uh, there's been a lot of people spraying fungicide. It's tough to do, Mike, whenever you're looking at uh, $3 corn, you know, cash corn for fall. I mean, it's costing guys 30 bucks an acre to spray, so you don't have to be a math wizard, you know. you you got to have a fair amount, uh, you know, 8 to 10 bushels uh, to, to really feel like you're, you're making it worth your while. But... At the same time, uh, every bushel counts, uh, I would have to think, whenever you're looking at prices like this. So if you can kind of protect that crop as much as what you can, uh, I guess my vantage point, from my vantage point, uh, I, I'm a little more hybrid-specific on corn and trying to spray the numbers that I know need it. And then on soybeans, uh, our research in the past has, has definitely proven to us that we need to be spraying these beans, especially in a warm, wet year. Matt, let's turn to the markets. We watch China. We talk about China and you know we wait for purchases and then they come in with some big big purchases but we don't see a huge market jump why is that well you know the thing is is that you've still got a 2.6 carry out projected at a 178.5 yield and so the market's sitting here thinking you know what we see this storm coming across iowa and then missouri and illinois and indiana and dumping a decent amount of rain on a lot of folks uh, at the time of year when you really want to see that happen. And so, you know, the crop is probably a little bigger than what it was earlier in the week. Uh, and so you get the sales, which I think several people in and around the trade knew these sales uh, either had happened or had heard whispers from exporters that this was going to be the case. And so uh, I think that that kind of mitigated the reaction. Now, we got to remember a couple other things. 
The Chinese have offered up 32 million metric ton for corn at their government auctions uh, since the month of May, and every single bushel's been sold, okay? And so uh, a lot of this corn is getting gobbled up at a much higher price than what they can get it from the U.S. If you would look at interior Chinese corn prices, they're actually a push around 450 uh, would be the price for U.S. corn, uh, looking at their prices. So there's no doubt that U.S. corn is, is attractive to them right now uh, if they can make it work uh, with all the other stuff we've got going on. So I guess the question is, of course, we don't know how much more they're going to buy this year, but uh, how much do they have to buy to really make a big market move for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, is uh, I cannot imagine that uh, they're going to buy a significant amount just yet uh, because this bigger crop, to me, is going to keep values from getting to jumping too much. You know, I, I don't, I don't see a huge rally in here, and I think they're probably uh, looking at it the same way as that maybe there's not a huge hurry. And so, whenever you're getting somewhat close to harvest, that might not be the the most appropriate time to step in and and really buy. Now, if it looked like we were going to get super hot and dry, and I know we're going to have plenty of heat, but if we would back out of some of these moisture uh, uh, forecasts, uh, in my opinion, you could rally the bean market a little bit, and then corn would maybe rally along in sympathy. But I just don't see any major move, and I, I kind of feel like uh, they they're looking at it the same way. If they'd buy another three or four million metric ton, though. I got to think we'd, we'd jump 10 cents anyway. Maybe they'll start buying some ethanol. That's what we keep hoping to see but have not seen yet. Meanwhile, we just had the numbers from uh, the chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association about the losses that the ethanol industry has already suffered and uh, the potential for significantly more this year and into next year if uh, this uh, – pandemic doesn't lift and people get out and driving again i mean it's just the ethanol industry is such a big part of uh, of our markets now and that's that part of it is really hurting and it, that demand uh, is questionable now because of these uh, spikes again in the coronavirus yeah i know and here's the thing one thing that i'm gonna just i just want to talk about a couple of facts that i've seen at the low, we were uh, around 53.5 million bushels of corn usage for ethanol. That was 11 weeks ago. 11 straight weeks, we've used more corn to make ethanol. Now we're up to about 93.5. So you're looking at about a 40 million bushel uh, increase. All right? And the other thing that, that you've got to understand is that uh, you know the, the stocks were actually down versus last week and down versus last year according to the EIA report this week. And so I think people, especially being summertime, people are getting out and driving some. Now, maybe they're not doing everything that they've done before, but I think people got cabin fever and they, they wanted to move around. They want to get something going on and, and get out of the house. And, and so I, I do feel like, uh, you know, yes, I, I understand that they're talking about increases in cases or, you know, uh, infection rates. But at the same time, I have to think that we've moved to a point where people feel like they know enough about it to know how to take care of themselves and their own family, uh, and, and they're still going to be able to do life to a much better extent than what we saw maybe in the month of March and April. Yeah, it's improved. Can we continue that? Can we keep it going? That's the key and the big unknown here as we are in uh, mid-July. Matt, as always, good to talk with you. Take care, and we'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Stay safe. Okay, that sounds good. Take care. Matt Bennett with Ag Market 
Net. Well, that wraps it up for today and for the week. It's been a busy week, and coming up on Monday, we'll take a closer look at the weather, get the latest ag news, and more on these issues as we head into late July. And a lot of questions still remain, especially what's going to be done in the Senate with that assistance package. We'll keep you up to date. Have a great and safe weekend, everyone. Thanks for joining us on AOA. AOA.